book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. We've been we've been looking at this this passage of scripture, First and Second Thessalonians, because um, we we need to get used to the idea that the privilege that Christianity has enjoyed in Western society is is a parenthesis. That for most of our history, the church and Christians has been a persecuted minority, and those who are faithful to the scriptures. Not just Christians with a lower C, but Christians with a capital C who model their lives after Christ. Through history have been persecuted and put under pressure and tested and tried. And right now the vast majority of Christians in the world today do not live in the freedom and privilege that we enjoy. And while we lament over little things like getting kicked off of Facebook, um, not too many years ago, the Christians of southern Sudan were being crucified for their faith. And we need to get into perspective what Paul said the church would endure And we need to get into perspective why Paul said we not only can endure it and survive it, but can thrive in it. You say thrive in persecution? Thrive when everybody's opposed to us? Thrive in negativity? Absolutely. You realize that the church, which the the gospel preached from slaves and oppressed minorities eventually overthrew the Roman Empire. And then it got corrupted by that same empire. The power of the gospel is boundless. The authority of the scriptures is absolute to the followers of Christ. But we must be grounded in an understanding of what that means. And so we want to look this morning again at First and Second Thessalonians. We're just going to look at a passage in First Thessalonians um, because there's not a parallel in Second Thessalonians, um, but we're going to look at First Thessalonians chapter one and verses four through ten. And I invite you to turn there with me if you have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack, um, and you can you can grab that and read it. We promise it's sterile. First Thessalonians chapter one. Um, The sentence begins this way. Paul says this. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, I'm going to do something the New England churches don't do very often, but I'm going to ask you to repeat something with me. Um, I want you to repeat this phrase. He has chosen me. He has chosen me. Now, that is a profound fact. If you are a follower of Christ, God has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and in, with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
for you have received the word in much affliction. I want to repeat with I want you to repeat with me again. I have become an imitator of the Lord. I have become an imitator of the Lord. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I am an example to all believers. Repeat it with me. I am an example to all believers. But not for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. I have turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, once again we come to your word. Lord, we ask not for human wisdom, but for your spirit to speak. We are your church. Not just Bedford Road, not just um, believers who have come to faith, but something supernatural that you... Uh, appointed Christ to be the head over, the Holy Spirit to be the life of. And though we are under pressure and under pain, and though we struggle and we are challenged, Lord, may we be always worthy of the calling you have placed upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit we come. I want you to pick up a few things that are going on in this text because they are foundational. They are fundamental to your spiritual well-being when the pressure comes. Well, you say, well, we're not facing pressure. We're not facing difficulty. You will. You will. And in fact, what we tend to think of as pressure and difficulty, it really pales in comparison to what many endure as pressure and difficulty. So I want to lay the foundation for you and, and kind of hopefully bury it in your conscience of what it means, uh, what takes us through the pain. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you. I want you first and foremost to know, and you may know this, but you may need to hear it again, that God loves you. Not because of something you have done to earn His worth, not because of the prayers you pray or the amount of Bible verses you read or the number of worship songs you can play. God loves you because of who He is and because you are His creation. God loves you because of who He is, not because you earn the right to be loved. Unlike all human emotion, which no matter how hard we try, some of our emotions, we have a tendency to allow our emotions to be affected by whether we think so-and-so is worthy of receiving whatever it is that we're trying to give to them. 
God's love is absolute. When he loves, he loves completely. But it's not just that he loves us. It is that he has chosen you. God loves you. He has chosen you. And the gospel came to you. Not only in word, but also in power and in Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I want you to think about this, about God. What Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians to understand. That God is an emotional being who has invested emotionally in you. God loves you. God does not coldly and calculatingly appreciate you for numerical value. He does not go through your list of qualities and determine uh, whether you are on the scale of good enough or bad enough. He doesn't weigh your heart. God has emotionally loved you. You say, well, God doesn't have emotions. He absolutely does. Biblically, he, is, he gets angry. He loves. He is heartbroken. You can, he can be grieved. He can be, um, he can be disappointed in us. God emotionally is invested in us. The creator of the universe loves you. And he has chosen you. God has intellectually made the choice. Again, you say, well, God doesn't think about stuff. Do you realize how absurd that notion is? That God doesn't think? That God, I mean, he knows everything, so he doesn't do stuff. Now, I'm not going to pretend to understand the mind of God. Theologians have been wrong for centuries about that. But I do know that God chooses us. And choice, this is profound, is a choice. Choosing is choosing. I know that's deep. I know theologically it really hits hard. But in order for Paul to say that, the church, that God chose, God has to choose. So God is emotionally invested in us. He has intellectually chosen us. And he took action for us. The gospel came to you. Now, how did the gospel come to the Thessalonians? It came through Paul. It came through a man, a flawed and I imagine, personally, very difficult individual. Paul was not, I think, an easy person to get along with. He had a tendency to tell people exactly what he thought in any particular moment, which is not ideal for the leader of a small church movement like he was leading. He, he, was, he had a tendency to talk above everybody else's level. If you've ever read the book of Romans, you know that that is the case with him. Sometimes he says stuff and you're reading and you go, but God, who loved the Thessalonians, who chose the Thessalonians, sent Paul with the gospel to the Thessalonians. 
And when the gospel was preached to them, it wasn't just Paul's intellect, it wasn't just his rhetoric, it wasn't just his power, it wasn't just the people that were with him, but that the gospel came in the word, that's what Paul is preaching, he preached the word, but then there was power behind those words, there was the Holy Spirit behind those words, and something happened in the Thessalonians. Because God had loved them, because God chose them, that when the gospel was preached to them, there was a conviction in their hearts and they accepted it, not just as a good idea, not just as a great religion, but as truth, the gospel, the message of Christ. Paul's God is not a cold and unfeeling, philosophical deity off in a distance. That's what, by the way, the Greeks believed the divine was. And we read all the Greek myths and everything, and, oh, Zeus and Apollos and all. Those, that, that, that was a long time ago. The Greeks of Paul's day, for one thing, in Athens, they just built altars for all the gods so they could cover all their bases. And I think my favorite part is that then they make an altar for a god that doesn't have a name. They're like, just in case we missed one. Cover that. Because all the gods want is to be satisfied. It's just a philosophical idea. Satisfy the gods. You can go about living your life however you choose to live your life. But for Paul, the God who revealed himself to him was loving, he was emotional, he was intellectual, and he sent the gospel. He was active. An idea, a philosophical argument, a theological abstract doesn't love you, doesn't choose you, doesn't send the gospel. But a loving father, a creator, a heartbroken sovereign, he does. And Paul says, you know what you're about to endure, what you're going through right now? I mentioned last week there were probably already people being killed in this church. There was already significant uh, persecution going on. He says, you know this because of the way that you came to understand who God is. You are going to endure this because nobody likes the idea Nobody outside of the faith, no one who hasn't come to know Jesus Christ, and I know this sounds harsh, wants a God who is loving, intellectually committed, and active. Now, they want a loving God. They want, they want God to love them. In fact, they want God to love them however they feel that they need to be loved by God. And some, of, some folks, they, they want God to choose them because if they were God, they would have chosen them. And they want God to be active to fix whatever their problems are, but they don't want God to be a truly sovereign, emotional, intellectual, active God. Because that's dangerous for human beings who worship themselves. No matter what they call their religion. We're talking about idolatry on Wednesday nights and we're getting into that idea. So Paul says, look, this is the God you serve. But he doesn't stop there. 
I'm fascinated by this, that Paul doesn't stop with, this is God, God is good enough. Period. Move on. And Victor Borga used to sound out his punctuation. All right? That that's all you need to know. He doesn't say that, that this is all you need to know. He continues to talk about them. He says, so here's the God that you and I serve, right? Emotional, intellectual, active. He says, and you became, verse 6, you became, or verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. He said, with all that, when you looked at what the gospel was being preached and you looked at God and you saw a loving and intellectually engaged God and then you, you saw us, you knew that, that we were bringing the truth to you. And in verse 6 he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Those two things are one and the same. Paul says... It wasn't just me. You didn't just come and listen to me. It was only when I came into harmony with God that you could imitate me. Don't imitate my nearsighted nonsense at night when my back hurts. But when I I am in the Scriptures, driven by the authority of the Word of God, when the Holy Spirit is speaking, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit, imitate that. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We need to understand, especially in like this whole this whole COVID nonsense, madness, craziness, not the disease. I'm not talking about the disease. I'm talking about you guys know what I'm talking about, the nonsense that's going on around it. All right? And I was told I had I had uh, some other church leaders that said, "You need to tell your people they have to mask in church end of conversation." Now you'll notice that in everything we write, we never say that. We never say masks are required. We say recommended. We, you know, we don't make a mandate. You know why? Because I and the elders, the elders and I, do not have any authority except the scriptures. I wasn't secretly endowed. I mean, I don't know about Ray, about you, but you, my ordination process did not involve a sudden shining glimmer of authority bestowed upon me. Doc, how about you? Any? No. We we don't suddenly zap, now everything Eric says is right. It is only when we are in conformity with the scriptures that we have authority. and, And so many people, they're looking for human authorities to jump in and tell them what to do. And then when you point them to the scriptures, they say, yeah, 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 yeah. But I need somebody to be the boss of me so I can tell them no. I mean, it's human nature, right? He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Who is he talking about when he says the Lord? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying, you you imitated me when I was imitating Christ, and look at what it did for you. I mean, look at the power and the presence of God in your life. And it flows out. He says, so that was internal. That was receiving, right? So they received the message of the gospel, they received the love of God, the choosing of God, the gospel of God. And then they they imitated. That came in, and then they became imitators of that. And as they imitated Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy and Jesus, look, verse 7, that you became examples to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He said, what happened to you? When you came under the power and leadership and authority and sovereignty and forgiveness 
of a loving God who chose you and presented the gospel. And you, you said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Paul when he's following Jesus and not when he's not. But when he's following Jesus, I'm going to follow him. What happened? He said, you became examples to all the believers. Everybody could look at you. Everybody in Macedonia could look to you and say, these are people who are following God. These are people that God loves. These are people that God has chosen. It says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves, verse 9, they, re- they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Everybody tells us, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about this extraordinary thing that God has done in the Thessalonians. And then he makes this one statement, this, this curious statement. He says, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Now you might read that and just, just pass over it. But catch what the ultimate result of God's love and choosing and gospel was. Catch what the ultimate result of them committing to follow the Lord was. Catch what the ultimate result of them preaching the gospel was. In their turning from idols, turning from false worship, from false love, from false uh, choosing, from false gospels, to following Christ, in making that choice to follow the living and true God, it put them in a situation where they were required now to endure whatever came as they waited for his son from heaven. Look at the phrase, whom he raised from the dead. That is incredibly significant. Not just theologically significant. It is preparation for the reality that believers die. That the pressures of this world, that the persecutions of this world that the darkness and sin and destruction of this world, whether we talk about it in terms of sin corrupting all of the universe, or we talk about sin corrupting the heart of one person who does one terrible thing, believers will die. I talk often, and, and this continually comes home to me, about the fact that the longer I'm in ministry, and now it's 16 years, the, the, the more of my friends are no longer assembled here with the church on earth, but are assembled at the church in heaven. And I won't see them again until the assembly of the firstborn. I won't see them again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Some of them, like Jerry Swenson, is correcting the marriage supper of the Lamb, making sure that it's proper and done correctly. Others, um, they're just going to sit around the table and they're just going to smile and lean back. But God is...
continually teaching me as a young man. I mean, being four, going on 45, I haven't even gotten started yet. But teaching me about what it means to be a Christian all the way through. What it means to be loved from the moment of the gospel being preached all the way until we're looking for the resurrection of the dead. What it means to be chosen to endure all that might bring me to my death. What it means to live the gospel no matter what the other messages of the world are. What it means to imitate Christ. What it means to be an example to others. What it means to turn to the living God. Because, and Paul wraps all of this in with the resurrection, he doesn't say, and I, and, and I want to make sure that you understand this is intentional. It's how you turn to, idols, to God from idols to serve the true God. That, that's good, idols, true God. But he says, the living God. The God who loves me. God who chose me, the God who sent the gospel to me, the God that empowered me to imitate him, the God who empowers me to be an example to others, the God who, when it is time, will take me to be with him. He is the living God. He is the God who resurrected Jesus. He is the God that delivers us, whether he delivers us the way we want to be delivered or not. Whether you face persecution or not in your current life, whether you endure any difficulty beyond somebody correcting your punctuation, you as a Christian, you need to understand That he loves you, he chose you, and he brought the gospel to you for a reason that runs all the way to the end of the story he is writing through you. It doesn't stop halfway. God doesn't go, oops, that one got taken too early. He is an active and real and living God in you. And if you are still here, if you are still on this journey, then you're not done imitating him. You're not done being an example to others. You're not done being used in the ministry of the gospel. Some of you haven't even gotten started yet, and it's time to get moving on the calling of Christ. And some of you are getting to the end of your story. The weekend, the, the, the weekend before Greg got sick, he and I were talking about how we were going to get the children's ministry going again. And you know what? I, honestly, I, I, people ask me about how it was going. I, I cry for, for Bree and Ryan and Micah and Val and, and Grant and, and Allie and Jordan and Lori. But Greg's doing exactly what God wanted him to do right now. 
I'm not sure how, but somehow he's hunting. Or disappointed that the Beatles aren't in heaven, one or the other. <laughs> but right up until right up until that point, he was just going to keep doing it. And I don't cry for Greg. I don't. He did everything that he needed to do. He was loved. He was chosen. The gospel was at work in him. And that should be our testimony always as Christians. We're in the middle of what God is doing all the time. And the middle of what God is doing might be the end for you. It might be the beginning for you. But it's still what God is doing. Let me ask you a question. This morning, we started, and I had you say, repeat those lines, I am chosen. I am loved. I am an imitator of the Lord. Maybe you don't feel like that today. Maybe you don't know what God has for you to do. Maybe you... You're confused or frustrated or worn out. Can I encourage you to take a break from whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, whatever hole you're trying to dig yourself out of, and settle on this until you can know it for sure. I am loved, I am chosen, and the gospel came to me. That the living and true God loves me, he chose me, and he sent the gospel to me. And whatever you are going through, whatever you are enduring, can you bring yourself to the point where on your knees or on your face or just standing or just driving or just reading your scriptures, you come away saying, God, thank you that you love me, that you have chosen me, that your gospel came to me, and I will turn to you, the living God who raised the dead. And I will follow you until the end of the story you're writing in me. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, make our lives worthy of the calling you have placed upon them. Help us to love because we are loved, not because we get something in return. Help us to serve because you have chosen us, not because we get something. Help us to be examples to all believers, not because everyone can look at us and think how great we are, but because of how great you are. Help us to live our lives right to the end, bringing glory and praise to you, however you have equipped us to do. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. 
and give you peace and give